0: All right, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. The message is entitled, An Embarrassing Lesson on Humility. As you live in this earth, you will learn that if you do not walk humble in life, you will be humbled by life. Pride is man's greatest enemy against humility. Spurgeon said, uh, quote, the way to heaven is downhill, not uphill. Paul has already pointed out, as you know, the party spirit present at Rome in chapter 1, verse 15 through 16. Some were preaching our contention that hurt them; Others, they were becoming courageous and preaching Christ. Either way, people were coming to Christ, even the Praetorium Guard. But there was party splits. In chapter 1, verse 27, he told them also to be striving together for the faith of the gospel in their persecution. As the people on the outside are looking in, how you respond to things, how you live your life, how you deal with things. You, if you're all Christians, you go through different things. Um, you're to show a unity and a faithfulness, a consistency in the scriptures. Um, important. But also in chapter 4, verse 2, he will get and he'll point out two women, Yodia and Syntyche, who were at odds and um, with each other, and he begs them to have the same mind in the Lord. And so the Philippians had some um, disunity problems, and that's what Paul deals with it. Paul just exhorted the Philippians to seek unity and humility of mind for the purpose of looking beyond one's own interest to the interests of others in chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. His exhortation is in view of their persecution, that's the backdrop. Each believer having the potential to allow the spirit to make him or her like-minded as Christ, able to yield to the same love, be of one accord and of one mind, in lowliness of mind, esteeming others better than self by looking to the interests of others and not just to their own to comfort one another, and their sufferings after the model and conduct of Jesus Christ. He's the epitome of the example here. We are used by God, as you know, to comfort and encourage people by the Holy Spirit through us, the Holy Spirit working and bringing unity through each of us. But um, as we've said before, we do not make or create unity We only disrupt the unity of the Spirit in the body of Christ, the church. When people are walking in the Spirit, things work great. But you find out how much they're walking in the Spirit when the difficulty or controversies come. How they respond. When everybody's talking, when everything's sanitary and clean and it's hypothetical and we're just looking at theology and we're asking these questions, oh, we're cool, we'll come, collect it. Then all of a sudden something happens and then someone confronts you. And then everything breaks loose. Now, now we know you're not spiritual. You were just acting spiritual. And you would be amazed how many people are like that in the church. You know, we see it all the time in society. Greatest God, greatest girl. But then you're not married to them, are you? <laughs> Need I say anything else? The Philippians were not to be um, acting carnal through pride, selfish ambition, conceit, but rather seeing others through the mind and the heart of Christ. Therefore, Paul gives the command in verse 5, let this mind, for now, we use that word over and over again, in you, which was in Christ Jesus, to think of or be mindful of others again as Christ did. This is the one thing, the one mind we are to put on constantly. That was the focus of last time. So verse 5 is a transitional verse that looks back to the exhortation of verses 2 through 4, as well as looking forward to the illustration of Christ and how he manifests his humility of mind in the incarnation, a supreme example of unselfish. Humbleness, humility, the mind that is motivated by love, the mind that humbly looks out for the interests of others and not self, the mind that is esteeming others better than self, verse 6 through 11 is one connected sentence about the humiliation and exaltation of Christ, and it's believed to have been an early church hymn sung in worship. Now Paul commanded the Philippians to think like Christ towards others by a threefold description of Christ's humility of mind for the service of others. Let me read verse 6 through 8. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, And coming in the likeness of man, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Paul commanded the Philippians to think like Christ towards others here by a threefold description here of Christ's humility of mind for the service of others. First, the greatness of Christ's humility, verse 6, the greatness. Secondly, the extent of Christ's humility, verse 7. And thirdly, the depth of Christ's humility, verse 8. The greatness, the extent, and the depth. Let's begin here with the greatness of Christ's humility. Christ, put here, Christ in the incarnation. First, it's in the incarnation right here. Notice Paul the Apostle. Um pointed out the greatness of Christ's humility was that he was God. Don't miss it. Listen to the words. Who being in the form of God. So Paul uses the personal pronoun who, referring to Christ Jesus in verse 5. Looking back, reflexive. The command is found in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, as we've noted. It's an imperative command, not a suggestion. The imperative present middle voice indicates each person must do this for themselves and of themselves. No one can do it for you. The kind and quality of mind of Jesus will now be the theme. The title of Christ again identifies his deity as the Messiah of the Old Testament. The name Jesus identifies his humanity and it means Yahweh is salvation. The God-man. Both are necessary. With God as being God, he took the hand of God. And being man, he took the hand of man, and he died, and his blood joined us to God. There's no other way he could do it, because as we're going to see, he was 100% man, 100% God, yet without sin. Now, notice Paul goes on to describe the particular mind of Jesus Christ here. The word being in the Greek describes an antecedent condition that is carried to the present. Being in the nature of God. This is a participle, present, active, and ongoing reality. In other words, before the incarnation, Jesus was God. During the incarnation, he continued to be God. And after he was exalted and went back to heaven, he's still God. <laughs> Alright? He was God all along. This is the nature of God. Being. In the form of God. Notice, Paul then identifies the person of Jesus by the word "form," without the article, referring to the inner, essential, and abiding nature of his person, the essential attributes and character of divine essence, not the physical being. For God is spirit; those who us worship him must worship in spirit and truth. He has no body. John four twenty four is very clear on that. The woman of Samaria. Jesus told her. Jesus was the answer to Isaiah's prayer. Listen to him. All that you would tear open the heavens and come down, Isaiah 64.1. Jesus says, wait 700 years, I'll be down there. <laughs> the incarnation. Micah says Jesus was from the vanishing point to the vanishing point from the days of eternity. Micah 5.2. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. He rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and he was glad. John 8, 56 and 58. Jesus says, he that has seen me has seen the Father. In John 14, 9. He was God. You see, Paul knew the tabernacle was a picture of the incarnation prophetically. He was a Jew. When Paul is writing. All he has is Old Testament. He doesn't have a New Testament. He's writing these letters, Okay. <laughs> They only had the Old Testament when we first started at the church. Now the outside of the tabernacle was rough and rugged, with no real beauty. A covering of ram' skin, dyed red, and over that was a covering of badger skin. Some believe it could be porpoise, um, whatever. It was rough and tough. Exodus 36:19. So from the outside, it didn't look anything real glorious. But the inside was splendid and glorious by the fine linen wool and blue and purple and scarlet thread and the design of cherubims, angelic hosts in the presence of God, Exodus 26, 1-37. All the furnishings spoke of Jesus Christ, types and shadows of things to come. The book of Hebrews gives us all that interpretation. Notice the Apostle Paul pointed out the greatness of Christ's humiliation was that he was God and waived his right as God. He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Paul presented the very thoughts of Jesus at the time of his incarnation. The word consider means judgment based on facts. The tense is the indicative present middle voice. Once again, it's coming from Jesus himself, the middle voice. This was his ongoing thought process coming from Jesus himself. The calculation, assessment, and the perfect conclusion of his thinking, he's God. Notice Paul declared, he, Jesus, did not consider or account at robbery to be equal with God. The word robbery means the act of ceasing or a thing ceased. The meaning is a prize or a treasure to be retained or held on to at all hazard or to clutch greedily, and is found only this time in the New Testament. Yet the first Adam wrongly attempted to become like God, being a man. Jesus being God, he's going to wave it and put it aside. The first Adam being man believed a lie to try to be God. How different that is. Jesus was not trying to obtain equality, for he was God. G was not trying to hold on to equality for his own benefit, but rather waived his natural right for the sake of lost man. Jesus denied himself by self-denunciation of what belonged to him. Listen to me. Naturally. Naturally. The Greek scholar Weiss says this, and I'm quoting him. The only person in the world who had the right to assert his rights waived them. (laughs) Do you realize the greatest crime in the world was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? He was absolutely innocent. Absolutely innocent. Paul is saying, take a lesson from God in humility and interest for others. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. The story is told of two brothers who uh, grew up on a farm one went away to college, earned a law degree and became um, a partner to a prominent law firm in the state capital. The other brother stayed um on the family farm. One day the lawyer came and visited his brother, and the uh, farmer asked him why don 't you just go out or or?" or uh, the other brother asked him, why don't you just go out and make a name for yourself and hold your head up high in the world like me? The brother pointed and said, you see the field of wheat over there? He goes, where? He said, over there. He said, look closely. Only the empty heads stand up. Those that are well filled always bow low. Interesting. The problem of man is that too often he allows his momentary greatness to get in the way of humbling himself before others. No one's excluded, ladies and gentlemen, not one of us. Philippians 2.4 says, let each of you look out not to only for your own interest but also for the interests of others. If you think I'm repeating myself a lot, It's purposeful. (laughs) The other problem with man is that more often than we know, our greatness is only in our own minds, having no room or desire for humility, being self-deceived. In chapter 3, verse 2 through 3, it says, Fulfill my joy. By being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but the loneliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Chapter 2, I'm sorry. The sinful nature of man and his pride is forever attempting to exalt self above others by comparing himself to others. This is the nature of sinful man. Competition is good, but along with that sin nature, there's that comparison of exalting oneself. Philippians two twenty nine through 30 he says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. So our ability to humble ourselves before the Lord is basically with our eyes on the Lord and never looking around and comparing ourselves to anybody but Christ. Absolutely no one else. Because we're completely different. So the greatness of Christ's humility is evident by the height that he had. He was God and he waived his right as God in the incarnation. Secondly, we have the extent of Christ's humility in verse seven. On this put Christ by the incarnation. Notice the Apostle Paul described the extent of Christ's humility. He actually emptied himself, but made himself of no reputation. Paul stated Jesus did this of his own will. The personal pronoun himself is emphatic in the text. Jesus was the one who made himself of no reputation. No one forced him, no one conquered him. He did not owe anybody anything. The phrase no reputation comes from the word means to empty, indicating that he divested. Or he laid aside his usual mode of existence as God is called the kenosis, the emptying of self. That's the word. The tenses in the indicative era is active. Something done in the past with ongoing present results. And notice the word but. It means nevertheless. It's not a contrast really. But it says nevertheless. In spite of this fact that Jesus was God. He made himself something other than God. For a set time. This Jesus did of his own will. Not because he had to. But because he chose to. The question is of what did Jesus empty himself of? Did Jesus empty himself of his deity? No. Otherwise, his claim to be equal to the Father would have been a lie. Jesus divested himself of his expression of deity, not his possession of deity. This involved his glory, the outward expression of his inward possession. That which he prayed for, that he had with the Father before the world was. In John 75, Father, glorify me with the glory which I had before the world was. He divested himself of his glory, the outward expression of his being. The word glory, as you know, means majesty, including his preeminent position and place of rulership, leaving his throne. The rightful glory, invisible radiance of who he was, Jesus veiled with a body be, if he didn't have that body, anybody looking him, you died. No man can see God and live. <laughs> Jesus was and is the visible image, icon, of the invisible God. That word is used for a stamping of a coin. Colossians one fifteen and two nine. Jesus was and is the express image of God's person, used of an engraver. Or a tool die, listen, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 1 3. Let me suggest you that he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him in Hebrews. It wasn't the salvation of others. The joy was he was going to be reunited with the Father in glory. (laughs) Study the context. It's always looked wrong. The joy was he was going to be reunited with the Father. He never had any doubt about the salvation. (laughs) He came to die. He rose himself from the dead. Notice the Apostle Paul... Described the extent of Christ's humility by the fact that he emptied himself in two ways. He says, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. The first thing that Paul stated is that Jesus took on the form of a servant. The word took is another principle or participle. errors is active here. Indicating a simultaneous act or action. Being God, he became man simultaneously. Literally, having taken a simultaneous action. The word form is the same as in verse 6 that we looked at the inner essential and abiding nature of person and character. The character was that of a bond servant. Notice that. Dulos. We've looked at this before, indicating a slave by choice. It goes back to the Old Testament practice of a slave serving for six years, paying his debt off. Then he would be let loose in the seventh. And, um, but if at the end of those six years he wanted to stay with his master and say, I love you, I want to just serve you, you're the best thing I've found, he would then, um, uh, his master would take his servant to the door of his house. Put his ear by the um, doorpost, get an all a hammer, put a little hole in that ear, put an earring in him. When you saw a man with an earring, he was a bond servant by choice to his master for life. This is exactly the word right here. You can find that in Exodus 21, 1 through 6. Now, this was prophetic of Christ and fulfillment of the scriptures. I've opened up my ear. Isaiah forty three one through three, Isaiah fifty verse five through six, Isaiah fifty three thirteen, uh fifty-two, thirteen, all the way to fifty-three twelve, the, the servant uh, section of, of Isaiah regarding Jesus Christ. Now notice the second thing that Paul stated is that Jesus came in the likeness of men. This um, indicates the incarnation. There was no exchange, the one for the other, God for man. There was no exchange. There was the two existing as one with the other, the God-man. Both are simultaneous, but both are not the same or identical. They're distinct. Jesus had two natures. He was the last Adam just like the first Adam, yet without sin. He needed to be the God-man. Without those two, redemption would have been impossible. The phrase, in the likeness, means resemblance. A figure or representation identifying real humanity, yet without sin, not a mere phantom as taught by the Gnostics in 1 John 1, 1 and 4, 2. But he had a real body. After the resurrection, he says, look look at my side. Here are my hands. He ate with them. Listen to Paul in Romans 8, 3. God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and condemned sin in the flesh. He took on our sins. He became sin for us. Who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Second Corinthians 5.21 Man has an intellect, emotion, a will. Man has a body and a spirit. The spirit of God gives man the ability to live above sin through the new birth so as to not be mastered by sin nature. You are the um, best witness against that and of it. Because you certainly couldn't live the way you do now before you came to Christ. We live far different. Our desires, our pleasures, the choices we made, different. Jesus is holy, innocent, undefiled, and separate from sinners, the God-man, the mediator. Hebrews 7.26, 1 Timothy 2.5. The intent notice of God was not to appear as God, but as man while being God. Again, he was the last Adam becoming poor that we might be made rich. Second Corinthians 8, 9. God became flesh. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and God was the Word. John 1, 1. John 1, 14. And the Word became flesh and we beheld his, uh, his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, Colossians 2.9. 100% man, 100% God. Not a 50-50 bar. 100% man, 100% God. Notice Paul in describing the emptying of himself is not speaking so much of what Jesus emptied himself of, but rather how he emptied himself. By taking on the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men. Jesus knowing that the father had already given all things into his hands. And that he had come from God and was going to God. He arose and he washed his feet. Uh, washed the feet of the disciples in John 13, 1 through 17. He loved them to the uttermost. Who was he? God. What did he come to do? Wash feet and die. An embarrassing lesson on humility, isn't it? (laughs) Wow. Paul is saying, take a lesson from God who denied himself and condescended to man's lowest state a little lower than the angels to enrich others. Hebrews 2, 9. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. You know, a person asked, a rabbi, how come in the... Olden days, God would show Himself to people. But today, nobody sees God. The rabbi said, because nowadays, nobody can bow low enough. Simple. We think we're so great. We think we're the greatest things as ice cream. How wrong we are. Just look around. Look at commercials. Look at movies. Look at magazines. Listen to people talk. It's amazing. That includes Christians, by the way. <laughs> Man, contrary to Christ, is always seeking glory that people be in awe of them, to worship them. Philippians one sixteen says the former speech, or the former preached Christ from selfish ambitions. Not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains. People do a lot of things for different motives. But the main motive is for people to look at them. To grab attention. Man, contrary to Christ, is not a servant by nature. But rather desires to be served. Philippians 2.21 says, For all seek their own. Not the things which are of Jesus Christ. Paul says this. Paul had some great people that we read about. He says, no one like Timothy. That's amazing. Do you know how many names Paul gives in the book of Romans? He says, all seek their own. Wow. Wow. Man contrary to Christ seeks to present himself to be more spiritual than he really is, denying his own imperfection and shortcomings. Philippians 3.12 says, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold on me. Pressing forward in obedience, looking to Christ. So the extent of Christ's humility is evident by the length that he went to, taking on the form of a bondservant in the likeness of man by the Incarnation. The extent of his humility. Notice thirdly, verse 8, we have the, um, the depth of Christ's humility. On this one put, Christ through the Incarnation. First, it's in. Second, it's by. This one is through the incarnation. The Apostle Paul, notice, declared the depth of Christ's humility and that he was in every way a man. In every way. Because, wow, yeah, he was God. No, 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 no. Everything Jesus did, he did as a man depending on God. He never did anything as God. If he did, he would be cheating. Because Adam was not God. He tried to be God. And Adam had the faith of temptation as Adam. Without sin nature, he failed. Jesus came just as the last Adam. He would not fail. But he was exactly as the first Adam. Depending on God. Listen to the words and being found in appearance as a man. Paul stated Jesus was found in the appearance as a man outwardly. The verification of the humanity of Jesus expressed being found, which means to come upon or to hit upon after searching and found to be so. This involves inquiry, thought, examination. And scrutiny of observations. It's not just saying it or just glancing at it. This is like an autopsy. Jesus hungered. He thirsted. He tired. He slept. He got hungry. As I said, he cried. He bled. And he died. Just like you. You've experienced all these things... Not death yet, (laughs) but if the Lord tarries, we will, every one of us. This is the participle eras passive, something having taken place in the past, literally having been found. So he's recording what is true of fact in the past as to who he was. The same word is used for... Pilate about Jesus. Listen to his words, Luke twenty-three, twenty-two. I have found no cause of death in him. He investigated, asked questions. The confirmation of the humanity of Jesus is indicated by an appearance as a man the reference to appearance schema means fashion pointing to the external physical being in contrast to who he really was in the internal nature god that we've seen in verse 6 and 7 the word is used for the external physical world that is passing away in 1st corinthians 7:31 same word the word for man Anthropos means a human being, the human race. We get a word, anthropology, the study of the human beings, human race, the study of man. Paul, uh, notice, stated, the Jews told Jesus, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man... Make yourself God, John ten thirty three. Make no mistake, they crucified Jesus because they, he declared himself to be God. They knew exactly why. Pilate brought Jesus forth in his crown of thorns, and after he is beaten, and he said, "Behold, the man," John nineteen five. 100% man like any other. Muscles torn, ligaments hanging on. Blood. A weak body at this point. Just like any other person who was scourged by the Roman soldiers. He was tested in all points as you and I are, yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15 said. His temptation in the wilderness was as a man, not as God. In all four Gospels, you can see this. Satan came, he said, man shall not live by bread alone. So he depended on the Father to show me that I have no excuse for failure. He never used his deity to pass one test. He did it everything as the last Adam, exactly as the first Adam, to demonstrate that the first Adam didn't have to fail but chose to fail and that the last Adam could have failed but he wouldn't fail and he chose not to fail. If Jesus had no potential of failing, then he couldn't have been like the first Adam. Think with me. At first people think it's blasphemous to say that. No, it isn't. It's a glorious truth. If Jesus could not have failed, then there was no test. Are you with me? (laughs) He came exactly as the first Adam. Therefore, he had to have the same potential. Demonstrating the first Adam did not have to fail, but chose to fail. The last Adam had the same potential of failing, but chose not to fail depending on the Father. That's the lesson for you and I. Whenever I fail, it's because I don't depend on Jesus Christ. If I do, I wouldn't fail. Therefore, I have no excuse for my sin. All I can do is confess it, ask forgiveness, and go on my way in fellowship with God. Wow. Wow. Notice the Apostle Paul declared the depth of Christ's humility in that he submitted himself to the Father as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Paul pointed out that the submission of Jesus was seen, listen, in attitude. This is the most important thing for you and for your children and for me. Attitude. The word humble means to abase or bring low. An indicative error is active again, ongoing, and continuous. Jesus did this himself and to himself. Jesus did this of his own free will, prompted by his infinite love for sinners. Humility is the opposite of pride, and self-exaltation is used in secular documents of the Nile River when the Nile ran low, <laughs> same word. Jesus said, "I am gentle and lonely in heart," Matthew 11:29. He did not look down on sinners, but felt compassion and offered repentance and forgiveness to them, and was called a friend of sinners in Matthew 11:19. But he was never one with sinners. But he was among sinners. Today, the failure of many pastors and emerging Christians is they think they have to be one with the world so they can get drunk with the world, cuss like the world, and do like the world. And that shows them that they're human like them. No! That's a different gospel. Jesus was a friend of sinners, but he wasn't parting with sinners. He wasn't getting loaded. He wasn't trying to scheme on the chicks. He was very distinct from them. Okay? So what we're hearing much today in the emergent church with all these knuckleheads is blasphemous. Unbiblical. And they think themselves spiritual. God help them. They're corrupting the youth in the church today. Amazing to me. Notice Paul pointed out that the submission of Jesus was also seen in action. Attitude is first. Very important. Second action. The example was that Jesus was obedient. It means attentively listening. You as a parent, sometimes you call your child, and they say, "I didn't hear you." No, they heard you. They didn't listen. Listen, listening means you're going to obey. Hearing just means that you know the little, all those little bones in your ear—they work, and you hear a sound. And but you, you don't want to obey. There's a big difference. This is another participle, or his middle voice. Jesus Himself executed this obedience; no one else. Literally, having become, He did it Himself. I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. John five thirty. Jesus said. Jesus prayed all night to hear the Father's voice in order to choose the twelve disciples. Luke six twelve through sixteen. Jesus submitted to the Father who is said to be the head of Christ, yet Christ is God. 1 Corinthians eleven three. The chain of command. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Notice the extent of the obedience of Jesus was completely and totally to the point of death. It refers to his entire life from birth to that death. I do always those things that please the Father," Jesus said in John eight twenty nine. Anybody want to stand up and say that so we can have a good laugh? No one can say that. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God, Hebrews ten seven. He fulfilled everything. Which of you convicts me of sin? Jesus said in John eight forty six. Had no takers. Not one. Plenty of people hated him. No takers to accuse him. The extreme of the obedience of Jesus was to the very termination of his life, even to the death of the cross. Notice. Even the death of the cross refers to the most horrible form of death in the days of Jesus, as you know. No Roman would ever be crucified. It was reserved for the worst of people. The death he died was one of a common criminal prophesied in Scripture. He made his grave with the poor and the rich, his death. Isaiah is very clear. In the Psalms, the cross is vividly described, and the reason given for abandoning His Son: the Father is holy, and the Son became sin for us. So the wrath of God, the Father, was poured out on Jesus in our place. Psalm twenty-two, one three: My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? A couple of verses down: Because You are holy. Jesus, who had no sin, became sin. The Father, being holy, could not approve of the Son. He had to turn His back on the Son and pour His wrath on the Son as He died in our place and made a real payment, had a real death, and there was a real acceptance of that payment. It wasn't something that was fraudulent. In the garden, Jesus prays, not my will, but your will be done, Mark 1436, he sweat as the word drops of blood, Luke tells us. A person died in shame and by a very slow, painful suffering, usually ending in suffocation, unable to push yourself up any longer with that little seed and peg through your your feet, and your joints would just dislocate. And you wouldn't be able to breathe; you just suffocate. It says Jesus tasted death for every man, Hebrews 2:9. Jesus destroyed him who had the power of death, the devil, Hebrews 2:14. Jesus endured the cross, the spice, and the shame, in Hebrews 12:2 and 4. Jesus became a curse for us, Galatians 3:13, in fulfillment of Deuteronomy 21:23. My servant shall justify many, Isaiah fifty three eleven said. Wow. Paul is saying, take a lesson from God who obeys himself and submitted to absolute obedience, not regarding his own life for the benefit of others. Let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus. Hmm. There's an old ditty that goes, it needs more skill than I can tell to play a second fiddle well. In a similar vein, Leonard Brainstein, the great composer, was once asked which instrument was the most difficult to play. He thought for a moment and then replied, the second fiddle. I can get plenty of first violinists. But to find someone who can play the second fiddle with enthusiasm, that's a problem. And if we have no second fiddle, we have no harmony. Everybody wants to be first. First will be last, the last shall be first. The kingdom of God, ladies and gentlemen, is an upside down kingdom. The way up is down. Hmm. The depth of humility of man will often be measured by the acknowledgement of his own limitation driving him to Christ. Paul the Apostle in Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. The depth of the humility of man will be tested and cultivated throughout a life of submission in submission to others, in life on different levels, most particular in times of testings and persecutions. And in marriage is the greatest testing. Philippians 1.18 says, What then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, I will Rejoice. The depth of humility of man will be evident by his obedience to God throughout life by yielding to Jesus Christ. Paul in Philippians 3, 12-14 says, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that which Christ also, Jesus has also laid hold on me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do. Remember the one mind? One thing? Here it is again. One thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press to the goal for the price of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The depth of Christ's humility is evident by his obedience as man, even to the death of the cross, through the incarnation. What a passage! What a passage Paul wrote here. Amazing, amazing. Spurgeon said, It is not humility to underrate yourself. Humility is to think of yourself as God thinks of you. It is to feel that if we have talents, God has given them to us. And let it be seen that like freight in a vessel, they tend to sink us low. The more we have, the lower we ought to lie. Hmm. Paul commanded the Philippians to think like Christ towards each other by giving them these three descriptions of Christ's humility of mind for the service of others. An embarrassing lesson on humility The greatness of Christ's humility is evident by the height that he had. He was God, and he waived his right as God. The extent of Christ's humility is evident by the length that he went to, taking on the form of a bondservant in the likeness of a man. And the depth of Christ's humility is evident by his obedience as a man, even to the death of the cross. Now, we have this mind of Christ, Scripture tells us, 1 Corinthians 2.16. The problem is we don't put it on like Philippians 2, five says. We just don't put it on enough. But we have the ability. We have the mind of Christ. Lord, thank you for your grace, your love, your goodness. We love you. We thank you. We just... Um, Father, I'm um, just humbled by your example, your grace, your love, who you are and what you did and what you continue to do. And we who are so sinful and so flawed, we act as if we're not. And Lord, we pray that you would make us more humble like you and that, Lord, we would just submit ourselves to you in a greater way. Pray for everybody here, that your hand be upon them, Lord, over the radio. The internet, anybody listening, Lord, that they would call on your name and repent of their sins and you save them. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you're here or maybe you're listening over the radio or the internet, Jesus Christ is God who became man, died for your sin in your place. He rose from the dead. And if you believe what he said about himself and what he did on your behalf. You can call upon his name and he will forgive you of your sins and he will give you eternal life and a new nature to be able to live that life. It's by grace through faith we do not deserve it. He graciously gives it to us by faith. Faith always points you back to the word of God, what he said he did and who he says he is. And if you believe that, he honors his word above his name. And he will save you. He will forgive you. And he will make you his son or his daughter right now. This is your prayer if you want to accept him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.